Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website as well as on this podcast. As we require spacecraft to fly longer missions and missions further into space, the power demands will not be met by solar panels alone. NASA has developed a small one kilowatt nuclear reactor that will be used for extended lunar and Mars missions, but NASA's reactor is too big and too bulky for all but the largest satellites or those going long distances to the outer solar system and beyond. So what are small satellite producers and operators to do? Well, the solution may very well be a nuclear battery. And my guest is Morgan Boardman, CEO of Arkenlight, a UK-based developer and manufacturer of micro power sources. Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, yeah, glad to be here. It's my pleasure. Tell us, first of all, what a nuclear battery is. Well, that's a really good question. Uh, it's sort of a catch-all phrase for uh, any kind of a, a power generator or power cell which uses radioisotopes as the, the uh, fuel source. Now, uh, there's radiovoltaics. Now, radiovoltaics are the ones that we specialize in. They act much like a solar panel, uh, except instead of harvesting photons from the sun, they harvest uh, particle you know, particles from radioisotope decay. Now, uh, if, if we go back in time, there was a guy named Henry Mosley back in the early 1900s who came up with the idea of a nuclear battery. And he had proposed that you could use radioisotopes to, uh, you know, to, as a power source, as a power cell. Uh, in the uh, 1950s, uh, General Electric had taken this forward. Um, I think, uh, you, know, you know, General Sarnoff had identified that there would be an opportunity to use uh, radioisotopes, in, you know, for you know consumer purposes, and they started off with a couple of ideas. They had um, a uh, uh, radio-powered uh, light, which was meant to act as a uh, uh, antibacterial light. It was a light that emitted, uh, you know, light, but it also emitted, um, you know, radioactive uh, particle decay. Uh, that would kill bacteria. Uh, quite obviously, that didn't last long for obvious reasons. Um, I think they were using a gamma emitter. I don't think that was very safe. So anyway, that one didn't last long. Then there was sort of, sort of like the radium dial watches that we all used to wear. <laughs> kind of the same, very similar idea. And then, and then there was also a, a nuclear-powered radio, like a transistor radio. Uh, that also didn't last long. However, what did last long and is still even still lasting to this very day was um, radioisotope powered pacemakers. Now, the first ones were made in the 1950s. They were, you know, uh, they had a long road to go through in terms of regulatory processes. But by the time you get into the 60s, you now have pacemakers that are powered by radioisotopes. And the two radioisotopes that were primary were promethium, and uh, the other one was uh, plutonium. Now, just to give you uh, a point of view, uh, there are still people alive today who are healthy with plutonium-powered pacemakers. 
And so far as I know, there was never an incident of any kind of radiation poisoning uh, with one of these patients. And in fact, um, so far as we know, everybody uh, maintained much better health than the rest of the population with a lithium ion coin cell or pouch battery, uh, simply because there didn't have to be the invasive surgery uh, to replace the power cell, et cetera, onwards. Now, the reason why these were substituted for lithium-based uh, you know, uh, uh, pouch uh, batteries was cost basis more than anything, and there was some there was some concern about you know how if you have say a hundred thousand people in the U.S. with you know plutonium pacemakers and let's say whatever five thousand of them die this year and let's say a hundred of them happen to be in New York City and they all go off to the crematorium when that thing goes up and all that plutonium aerosolizes what happens that's actually not a bad you know, sort of thing to be concerned about, I would say. Right. How, however, in the meantime, you know, that there were some concerns around it that had to do more with cost, and that's why we went that direction. Now, jumping forward to the current time frame, uh, the reason why we're looking at, um, you know, the reason why we are now looking at commercializing, uh, you know, radiovoltaics is because I think for the first time in the history of nuclear batteries, they're at a place where they may be commercially relevant, meaning that the cost can be low enough, safety can be uh, you know, high enough, and the power density is relevant uh, along with a uh, scale cost point that um, manufacturers will actually want to use. And so that's kind of how we've gotten to where we are now, why we're actually going out to commercialize what we've developed. You've kind of almost answered this question, but what is the typical lifetime of this, these types of power sources? Well, instead of lifetime, think of half-life, uh, half-life. Okay. And so then it really depends on the type of isotope that you place inside of the diamond matrix. Now, what we do is we take a radioisotope, in our case, a beta-emitting isotope, because beta-emitters are, uh, given safety considerations, are safer. We, we see the safety case around beta-emitting isotopes to be far greater than, say, for example, alpha, gamma, or um, you know, X-ray emitting. Mm -hmm. Uh, isotopes. In any event, um, it, if you look at that, then it comes down to how long does the uh, is the half life. So, in the case of tritium, the half life is about twelve point three years, uh, which means that after twelve point three years, uh, you know whatever you start with. If you start with say one microwatt of power, and power is relative to the the amount of isotope in the material, right, mm -hmm. in in the power cell. So, if you start off with say 10, 10 gigabecquerels of specific activity of tritium in a very small form factor and one microwatt. At the end of 12.3 years, that would be about half of that power. So it'd be about 500 uh, nanowatts, right? So, you know, what we look to do is to double the cells so that we can guarantee that they will provide one microwatt all the way through a 12.3 year cycle. If you want it to go for longer, it would be multiples of that 12.3 years. In the case of carbon-14, uh, you don't have to worry about doubling because the uh, half-life is 5,000, uh, over 5,000 years. So when it's over 5,000 years, it's far longer than a human time scale. I mean, I don't know if the 
builders of the pyramids thought about what they would look like in 5,000 years, but, you know, we can see them. And, and of course, I think the, the electronics components and the metallization and the packaging would have broken down long before we get to the end of 5,000 years, but still. So that's kind of a range. Uh, there are some places in between, for example, other isotopes, which are more suited to say, high reliability over long periods of time within a human time scale, that is up to say like 100 years. Mm. But, uh, yeah, just it depends on the on the flavor, I guess. Morgan, tell us a little bit about your background and the team you're working with. Sure. Okay. Uh, won't spend a lot of time on my background, focus more on the team, but just to give you a brief summary, I'm a deep generalist. I've worked in a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, se uh, segments of industry. Uh, my first training actually was in social work. Uh, that's what I went to university to study, but I burned out before I completed it while I was doing my internship and realized I didn't want to be a social worker. <laughs> and so in a completely asymmetrical move, trained as a private investigator, and that was my career for the first eight years was I worked as a private detective. And, um, you know, now going forward, I then moved into uh, working in the uh, uh, film industry. I worked as a creative producer, a line producer. I've worked as a consultant into businesses that were challenged propositions, noted for getting, if it's in the red now, I can get you in the black within about six months. That was my tagline when I was doing that kind of work. And, and I've continued to do security work here in the UK. I have a security company. We do high-level consulting. Um, and separate to that, for the last 15 years, in parallel, I have been working for um, high technology companies. Uh, one was an applied physics developer uh, in Northern Virginia for about 10 years. And uh, just about eight years ago, I moved here to the UK because of that company I told you about, uh, the uh, Intelligence Resources Group. Um, but while I made that move, uh, I also met Professor Tom Scott at the University of Bristol because part of my work is in a, where there's an overlap between technology and consulting on security uh, for stakeholders. So uh, when I met Professor Scott, we had a great conversation about radiovoltaics. Uh, we had a great conversation about uh, material sciences, uh, particle physics. It was exciting. And then we ended up having a conversation every week for a couple of months. Every, every Thursday afternoon, we'd get together uh, down on the Thames River over from the House of Lords, where he was uh, on appointment there every Thursday addressing the House of Lords. And when he was done with his, you know, address, he would come across the the the, the, the uh, river, and we'd have tea and and have very exciting conversations. And as a result, uh, Professor Scott appointed me to the Industrial Advisory Board in the Aspire Diamond Group, which is the Diamond Group in the School of Physics at the University of Bristol that specializes in ultra hard materials, nuclear sciences, low power electronics, and that's kind of the perfect Venn diagram from which Arkenlight was born. Now, Arkenlight was born as a spin-out from this group, from the Aspire mm -hmm. Diamond Group in the University of Bristol. And I talked about Professor Scott, but his, uh, his partner, his peers, Professor Neil Fox, was also one of the founders. And uh, what is interesting about Professor Neil Fox is he holds a, a, professor, uh, uh, a professorship at the uh, School of Physics and at the School of Chemistry. So he has separate postings as professor within uh, 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 University of Bristol. So that's, that's you know, I'd say that's quite a, quite a caveat. They're both well-published. Uh, they're knowledgeable in their fields. Uh, they have a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, Professor Fox used to work in, uh, uh, in space, uh, you know, before he went back to being, a, a, you know, an educator at the university. And the Aspire Diamond Group is chock full of people that have 
sort of um, a variation in in their in their capability. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, Hugo Dominguez, who's our lead experimentalist on the radiovoltaic program, his PhD is in physics. However, his master's is in mechanical engineering. And then we have uh, Dr. Uh, Yannick Verbellen, who is our uh, power electronics innovator, right? He's kind of the guy that helps us to work as an interface with customers. And uh, he's got a, a PhD in uh, electrical engineering. And Tom Scott, his, uh, his first degree, I think, was in uh, ge geology uh, or geophysics. And you know now he is a professor at the School of Physics, and you know teaches material sciences and and specifically around ultra hard materials. This is one of his favorites. But he is also a noted authority on all matters nuclear, and is often uh, you know sort of speaking to government. So we've got a lot of very talented, well credentialed, well seasoned people on board our team, and that's just a, a small you know sort of sampling. There's other people, for example, Robbie McKenzie is a newly minted PhD who's our experimentalist driving the gamma voltaic program, but he's highly talented and uh, the papers he's been publishing show a lot of promise. We're, we're quite lucky to have him because I, I look forward to his future progression in his career with, with keen interest. I'm sure he's gonna be uh, quite, a, quite an exciting person to watch and we're happy to have him as well. And then there's uh, also Tom Wallace-Smith, uh, Chris Hudson, uh, any number. I mean, we have a whole we have a whole baseball card roster or a baseball team <laughs> roster of all stars. Now, these kinds the, the the your power cells are very long lived, but the power that's generated is really very small. And you were kept talking about micro and and you know like very very small amounts of power. So, what types of applications are best for this power source? Well, that's a really good question. Um, so, just to be clear, when we talk about our power cells, our first one that we're working on now, our first product is, of course, a micro power generator, and that is very low power. And that would be perfect, say, for uh, permanently powered RFID tags uh, so that um, satellites at the end of life, when they power down, uh, can still be interrogated by uh, somebody else and, you know, return a a registration, who owns me, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if you're thinking about uh, low earth or high earth orbit salvage uh, efforts, um, you know, this would be a way for the salvager to identify who the stakeholder that owned it previously was. Or if you're looking to navigate through the space trash that we have on multiple layers around the planet now, mm -hmm. um, you could actually use this to kind of interrogate all of the trash on your route and figure out what it is, where it's at, and, you know, et cetera. So we're working with uh, the European Space agency right now, uh, they had approached Arkenlight uh, for a power cell for this permanently powered RFID tag. Uh, and we had we had uh, talked about it and it became clear that um, this con this concept and this integration was low enough TRL that it would be better for the University of Bristol to carry it forward. And then when it was commercializable for it to come over to Arkenlight, which is what we're doing now. So ESA and the University of Bristol and the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority are all working together on that specific use application. Other use applications uh, will come later. Now, for example, I do talk about micropower, but when we talk about um, diamond material, gamma voltaics, uh, they're modest in their provision. But it, it, see, that depends on surface area. So if you're in space, space is a hazardous environment. There's a lot mm -hmm. of ambient activity. It changes in levels all the time, depending on how much solar wind there is in the area, what the uh, conditions are on the sun itself in terms of uh, you know solar weather. Uh, these are all different conditions that play into that. But if you're in space and you have a, say, 
thermoelectric converter or a thermoelectric uh, generator, which is kind of like what an RTG is, right? So if you have layers that are laminated of thin film diamond made with carbon-14, um, this gamma voltaic and a thermoelectric converter, which is what we're working on, and you laminate those, you can actually build out something that has smaller mass than an RTG, the same power provision for about a tenth of the cost. So if you imagine one of these massive, you know, one and a half meter long by a half a meter in diameter RTGs uh, that are meant for deep space missions that are extraordinarily heavy, you know, we could potentially uh, build out something that would be uh, maybe two thirds of the mass uh, for one-tenth of the cost. And if one of those costs $800 million from Idaho National Labs, uh, if we could do that for $80 million, I'm sure people would be quite pleased. On a much smaller scale, if you're talking about something, we, we are looking to do a product that will have one kilowatt, that'll be a much smaller form factor, that would be much more useful for smaller satellites that are going to be further out in space, they, or the ones that will be positioned on the dark side, you know, stationary position on, mm. on the dark side of the planet. And when it comes to, you know, um, mining or colonization or any other mission where humans are going to be in space, you know, it may be low power, but if we can generate, if we can, if, if, if diamond material can be fabricated in space and you're not having to lift these things on a platform, right? right? So if you can lift the capacity to fabricate in space and then fabricate, you know, these, these radiovoltaic and thermoelectric combinations, these distributed power management combinations, they may generate a modest amount of power, but when you live someplace that's that hazardous or you're staying for long periods of time, you want reliability. And if there is anything wrong with your power systems, you can have a backup, which is always on and uninterruptible. It's not chemical. It's not reliant on outside inputs. It's stable and consistent for very long periods of time. That may be a real winner. You know, after all, that may be the, the key differential between survival and uh, failure. Uh, so, you know, that's what we're kind of looking at. That's the problem we want to solve is how to build in additional safety features for lower cost for the for us as a species as we go out into space. I'm talking with Morgan Boardman, CEO of Arkenlight, a UK-based developer and manufacturer of micropower sources. Take a moment right now and click on subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Morgan, most people associate the word nuclear with bombs or Chernobyl, but this is a much, much different situation. What, what are the differences? Well, I mean, okay, so there's, that's interesting. I mean, you know, when one says atomic, I could, I could be a, a real cheeky generalist and say everything is atomic. It's all made from atoms, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's talk about like, you know, um, I have, um, I, I like I like fluoridated uh, toothpaste, right? So I use fluoride in my toothpaste. Okay, that's that is, that's radioactive. It emits radioactivity, measurable. Uh, I like bananas. Do you like bananas? I had a banana this morning before I went bicycling. Bananas are cool. I think a lot of us like bananas. I mean, after all, favorite food of primates, right? You know, mm -hmm. bananas, bananas uh, have more detectable surface emissions uh, from the potassium than a um, than a beta light voltaic, uh, you know? So <laughs> that's something to take on board there. Now, uh, I just wanna say that there's, you know, something it has to do with, partially it has to do with the kind of isotope that is powering the power cell, right? So for example, if you're using plutonium-238, it is going to be more dangerous inherently, okay? 
uh, because it's a gamma emitter, it emits alpha particles. If you're using a europium, europium uh, um, is also inherently uh, just slightly more dangerous, though it's mostly a beta emitter. It also emits alpha particles and occasionally in some isotopes, x-ray particles. So it depends on the kind of isotope, largely. Now, when we think about um, nuclear energy, we think about Chernobyl, we think about uh, places like that. This is, this is not that kind of nuclear. For example, you know, most of the danger that surrounds uh, nuclear weapons has to do with uh, fission and fusion byproducts, which are extraordinarily um, uh, heavy in terms of their uh, gamma and alpha outputs, right? Mm -hmm. And X-ray outputs. Whereas when you talk about, say, like, for example, like Chernobyl or Fukushima, uh, it's very similar. Uh, you know, these are fissile uh, reactions gone bad. So there's lots of gamma radiation, lots of gamma trash, cesium-138, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that you really short-acting nuclides and actinides popping off uh, as some really nasty nuclear trash um, that, that is really dangerous. And this is not that. A beta particle um, is highly energetic, but it moves very quickly and then it just fizzles. It just kind of drops. So, mm. it, it, you know, in, in a perfect environment, um, a beta particle, say like vacuum, right? A beta particle may travel up to a meter or so. But when you're talking about, um, you know, a beta particle in air and it's emitting from a reflective source, say, for example, uh, if one were to escape, if a particle were to escape from the dense diamond lattice, it wouldn't be enough to break the human skin. Where it would be a problem is if you ingested it, right? And that's if you're ingesting a beta emitting radioisotope, inhaling it, something like that, putting it close to soft tissue, then it could pose a health risk. Uh, but in this instance, again, if you've locked it up inside of a dense, tight diamond lattice, and diamonds are known for being very hard, Mm -hmm. then uh, it would be really, really difficult to, to uh, you know, to make that unsafe, uh, you know. In essence, if, if somebody had a diamond-based pacemaker battery in their body, they would be at risk if the diamond broke and there was an edge of the diamond, the thin film diamond layer, where there was some of the isotope locked on that edge, and it would occasionally emit a single particle. But just to consider the amount of force necessary to break a diamond, if that was in somebody's chest, consider that that might be the least of their problems in the moment, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, the radioactive sources you're using are actually nuclear waste products. So what's the advantage of using nuclear waste? And again, that's a term that carries a lot of negative connotations. Well, this is a good question. Now, so first off, I just want to be very clear to manage expectations um, we've been working very hard over the last five years to build relationships within government in consortium with other parties. Uh, we're talking about uh, top tier uh, uh, contractors that service the nuclear decommissioning uh, world, you know, the, the civil uh, nuclear engineering community. Those are people that we are working with to get government to give us the waste that we can then process. So at this point, we're not literally processing waste, but that's our objective. That's our goal. And part of the reason why is if you can imagine right now, there's 95,000 tons of irradiated graphite uh, in, in store in the United Kingdom. Now, because the graphite is irradiated with um, you know carbon-14, uh, especially along the surface of uh, the fuel channel where the fuel rods were stored previously, and they were most exposed to um, irradiation from thermal uh, flux, gamma flux. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the, the surface carbon-12 has converted over time into a carbonaceous layer of carbon-14. Uh, 
Now, because of that, this now has to be sent into a deep geological facility because it's considered an intermediate level waste, right? If we are able to remove that surface layer efficiently and leave behind only carbon-12 and carbon-13, which are no longer irradiated or dangerous, then those blocks would easily be able to be stored in an above-ground facility, saving the taxpayer massive amounts of money in terms of the storage cost. And if we're able to do so at a benefit where, you know, we are paid a fraction of what the government would have to pay to process it into a deep geological facility, if we're paid, say, 10% of that to cart this stuff off like a cosmic rag and bone men to convert it into something <laughs> else, then we've made a little bit of money for the removal. We've saved the taxpayer a load of money. And now we have a feedstock, which then becomes a narrative for a circular economy within nuclear. In other words, why do people often dislike nuclear? It's because the end state waste products are such a massive hassle. There's a lot of them, and you have to mm -hmm. think about how to deal with them beyond well, a human time scale in the sense that we normally are accustomed to dealing with. Again, let me point out pyramids, the geological facility, 5,000 years, isotopes decaying, that's long process stuff. Right. Tritium, tritium, on the other hand, is interesting because it is both a byproduct and a waste product, but it is also manufactured because there's applications for it, especially now that fusion is uh, such a heavy high point of development throughout much of the you know, globe. A lot of people are developing fusion. So, so in that instance, you know, our narrative is we want to, if people are going to continue to do something and it has an, a dangerous end product, we want to serve the planet at large by providing an opportunity to process that point which is dangerous into something that is less dangerous and in fact useful, thus demonstrating the potential for at least in one strand, a circular economy in the nuclear process, because right now it's not. It may be sustainable, but it, it's, not, um, it's not circular. So let's talk about a couple of specific things here. What is beta light? Oh, okay. So we have a product now which we're selling, which is called the Betalite Voltaic. Now, the Betalite Voltaic mm -hmm. uh, is not something that uh, we invented. In fact, it's an open source technology. Uh, if you go on YouTube, you'll find makers who've made little Betalites. And, and in essence, what it does is it takes a gaseous tritium light source, which is a little vial uh, coated on the inside layer with a scintillator and filled with gaseous tritium. The gaseous tritium uh, emits beta particles, which interacts with a scintillator uh, causing a little bit of glow to come out. Now, depending on the kind of scintillator, you may get a red color, a green color, blue color, yellow color, such as it is. The best one for us at this time is the green color. So what we do is we take um, uh, a row of these, these little tiny vials. We sandwich them between two photovoltaic cells. Uh, we have a proprietary energy harvesting module, which we attach to that. We then wire the whole thing together uh, with a junction as an output. So it comes out um, in series, right? The two, mm -hmm. the two PV cells, and that creates a modest amount of current. And, and the one that we're producing right now, the Betalite Voltaic, it doesn't have anything to do with diamond. It's just little vials of tritium. There are already something that you can easily import or export across borders. There's already governance in place for that. The regulatory processes are already well covered for that. So it's something that we can actually use as a calling card and an interstitial technology to open the route 
for our other items later. And, and that's what a BeLight Voltaic is. The good news here is, is that our competitors um, are honorable competitors at City Labs, Widetronics, uh, you know, Betabat. You know, they've developed, uh, you know, power cells, which use tritium also. Uh, and there's, uh, so far as I know, and, and I could be wrong, but so far as I know, their power cells are hovering around one microwatt in, in power provision. Uh, and I think they cost around $2,000 to $5,000, depending on the maker. However, um, you know, ours are five microwatts, so it's, it's quintupling that power density, and we're able to sell them for the same price and uh, relative to the same form factor. So, uh, you know, we are quite pleased with that as a result. Now, um, again, as I said, it's an open source technology. So this is more of an interstitial technology that we've put out for the community to get more accustomed to the idea of a, a nuclear battery and to play mm -hmm. with them. And it's for makers, universities, uh, laboratories, uh, integrators, some of the customers we're working with uh, want to buy our power cells later and they want something that has a similar power provision to work with now. That's the purpose of that, yeah. So what other products do you have on the market? Well, okay, so that's a good question. The other thing that we have available for people to buy right now is uh, what's called a sensor pod, and this is our integration. So we can integrate a Betalite Voltaic with a sensor pod. Uh, one kind of sensor pod we have is environmentally hardened uh, for extreme environments, and we've been calling it a dragon's egg. Uh, you know, you may have seen photos where we've uh, dropped dragon's eggs. Uh, they weren't powered by a betalite at that time, they were powered by something else, but they were dropped onto the side of a volcano where they collected data that other mm -hmm. sensors put into that environment were destroyed pretty quickly because the, the, the difficulty of the environment. Uh, you know, another place that dragon's eggs uh, would be extremely useful is inside of nuclear reactors or nuclear waste stores or in space or in boreholes or any kind of an environment where it's extremely cold, extremely hot, extremely hazardous, either because of radiological or chemical, uh, even you know, as sort of sort of uh, you know conditions. So you know that's that's what that is. And then here within the next uh, say three to six months, we should have the very first alpha test kits, which have already been bought out for the tritium diamond beta battery. And following on to that, we should be probably another about 18, 18 months to two years from um, the diamond gamma voltaic being ready for uh, you know, beta testing. We've already sent some gamma voltaics out to customers to play with. They've had them, they've given us feedback. Um, Robbie is, like I said, the experimentalist on that program. He's carrying it forward now through the university. They've recently gotten funding and that product will come out probably in about two years also. Morgan, we're just about out of time here, but I want you to take a moment and look out, if you will, over the next 10 to 15 years, thinking about space commerce and tell me what you see. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I mean, it really is about, I think in an optimum sense, I think in an, op in an optimum environment, we would see more funding for the interstitial pieces of technology that when integrated would allow rapid uh, expansion and deployment of humans into space. Now, what I'd really like to see is more of an effort for space salvage and space mining and space manufacture. I can't say who, but we're working with some space manufacturers to build these batteries in space. I think that there's lots of new ideas that are, are constantly being uncovered uh, you know, through investigation and exploration, but I'd like to see more uh, you know, more like the International Space Station, more, more human 
um, efforts, but more commercial ones, not necessarily sci scientific, but actual mm -hmm. commercial efforts in space for manufacture, for salvage, and, and hopefully even positioning onto the moon for mining. Uh, when it comes to Mars, uh, I'm, an, I'm an optimist. I would love to see us on Mars or Europa or Io. Uh, you know, I think those would be exciting places for us to go. Uh, they are technically non-trivial in terms of their challenge. I'm sure we will get there. I don't know if we'll get there in the next 20 to 25 years. But separate to that, I'm also a huge fan of the NASA 100-year NASA Starship program. So, okay. you know, that conference that occurred, uh, you know, people that presented there, be it Jack Sarfati or, um, you know, Woodward or uh, um, Rollins, I mean, all these guys, uh, they all presented really interesting ideas. So hopefully commerce will also go to look at extra, extra uh, solar system uh, uh, missions. Morgan Boardman is CEO of Arc and Light, a UK-based UK developer and manufacturer of micro power sources. Morgan, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you for your time today, Tom. Appreciate it. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel. Be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at XterraJSC.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.